The archetype is a force. It has an autonomy. It can tease you. Her family has been involved in rituals for generations. She is currently in extensive therapy. Sigmund Freud removed that last vestige of what magic was all about. But what's happening right now in America is witchcraft trying to take this country over. Why would we not worship goddess? Why would we not love goddess? We're in trouble, ladies and gentlemen. The clockwork elves, all of it, I shouldn't even get into it. We are putty in the hands of brilliant magicians. Does this fuck joy? Quite a heady tome has recently found its way onto the statosphere. Coming from friend of the show himself, Ben. Last name of which, are we at liberty to discuss? I don't, I don't know his last name. Well, he's putting it down as Hammond in the... So, assuming that isn't uh, some sort of cover identity. I'm going to have to go through some anagrams to work out what his real name is. But it's probably close enough. He might not be Ben all along. He may have been pulling the wool over his eyes there, but... He's Don Benham. Ah, he's Don Benham. <laughs> That's his real name. Regardless, he has just released a very excellent book by the name of Oddies and Endlings. The subtitle, A Little Bit of Everything, for Unknown Armies. And I disagree. My first disagreement with him is in that subtitle there. This is a lot bit of everything for Unknown Armies. This is like an adaptation of the blog he was working on for about a year. And just sort of taking every little bit that he put on there and cobbling it together into something more unified and perhaps more easily referenceable. There's pretty pictures, yeah. which is which is always nice. From my understanding, he was doing his blog as a kind of like, it was like a challenge to himself, a writing challenge to see if he could do some Unknown Army's coolness every week for like a year or something along those lines. I don't lines. think it was like, every week. I think it was every day. <laughs> I don't know if it was every day. Because he was doing that for a while, and every day is insane. But he may be. I mean, Ben is an insane man. He's a South Australian. You can't trust him. If it was every day, I assume he was getting some charges off this. Just oh, We got back to Narromancy, are we? Well, no, no. You were talking about those rules lawyers last episode, right? Oh, that's Maybe true, he's trying yeah. to bring that back? Maybe. Maybe. So this is essentially... You got your artifacts, you got your cabals, you got your GMCs, you got your optional rules, other spaces, paragon places, rituals, and a natural endings and natural phenomenon. And all that is wrapped up with a campaign starter set. And that's the end of the stuff in the appendix, which is, in typical UA fashion, not very well labeled. Look, it's, it's not easy. Doing that sort of appendixing, indexing. That's sort No, of it's honestly not. And I'm not going to harsh on too much considering this is straightforward as a toolkit this is intended to be something the gm reads through and picks through as a way to get inspiration sort of like um book three you could make comparisons between like book three four and five with this it's more like um one of them had multiple people one of them had just greg i believe four was greg Three and five had multiple people working on it. And I think Greg wasn't even involved in the fifth one. Okay, that makes sense. But the thing is, this is, it does remind me of book three, except there's more of it, much more of it. It reminds me of postmodern magic. And he, here's the secret, right? I honestly like this better than books three through five. Yeah. 
it sparked joy more as I was reading it. It, it set off more of those GM fires in my head as I was going through it than really any of book three or five did. Or four even. Though four, I mean, a lot of that was just Greg Stoltz being like, hey guys, these are cool books I like. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But like with book three especially... It was a lot of words on things that we already knew or things from second edition that were like, here is what a Amaromancy Mar- is. Have three paragraphs about that, but no actual details. Yeah, no actual fucking stats, which is for that sort of player phase thing is what you want in a source book. So, yeah, uh, there was some cool photography choices in there. I'll give them that. The, I really like the graphic design for the book. I'm pretty sure a lot of those pictures were people that kickstarted at a certain level that they got a their picture in the book, which is yeah, fine. They did a good job regardless. And I like the little hand-drawn, handwritten notes that they had of just saying weird, vaguely evocative rumors and shit. Um, so that was kind of the one hint we had in the third edition line of those fun rumors that were interspersed throughout the earlier books. Yes. And that's one thing to say about... um oddities and endlings is like i'm not a the biggest fan of the art style used in third edition compared to second edition even though i know the second edition is way too 90s for now but i will i've always been a little bit skeptical of this whole stock photo aesthetic but having said that ben pulls it off pretty damn well considering this is like a non-official like a statusphere production it looks very good yeah he picked out some good ones like hell he may have taken some of these pictures himself. I'm not sure. I don't think he did. No, I think for the most part, these are all taken from what is it? Copyleft sources on the internet. They're all listed. All the um at the end. Yeah, all the artists, uh, all all the photographers are listed. So, yeah, I guess let's get into this. So it's hard to like really get deep into the details because this is it's a grab bag of like little tools. It's sort of like um a jewelry box of stuff to use in your UA game if the jewelry box was full of glass eyes and toenail clippings. Yes. And that's uh, both a good thing and a bad thing because there's just so much in here, so much good stuff in here. But because it's such a a massive toolbox, uh, it doesn't have like a a sort of narrative you might get from other kinds of role-playing game books no i only say narrative so much as like a focus yep like you know the way that all the previous source books even when they had an idea that was only really tangential to what they were focusing on they always were able to sort of center around this core pillar of it this is about the new inquisition this is about mac attacks this is about the invisible clergy exactly and with this i find like because we have to read the whole damn thing so we can talk about it I tried to space it out, but yes, reading through it all at once, may, I probably wouldn't recommend doing that. But it's really good. Like, I was enjoying, before it started coming up to do this episode quickly, when I was just, like, reading it every now and then, it was great. Because I'm just like, let's have a look at it, have another read of this. Uh, it's the sort of thing that's it's a good tome for, like, slow digestion. Especially when you're coming up with, like, looking at some of the rituals or artifacts or cabals or GMCs. Like reading one and then like like letting it percolate in your head and thinking like, yeah. I could use that in a campaign. It's a great thing to just 
put your scroll wheel on as sensitive as possible and just spin it down and see where it lands. And be like, yeah, you can put some, do some of that. This is not a book to like binge read through. But it is, it is a book that you end up going back to again and again. Yeah. This is like a real nice cheese. A strong cheese, too. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to just eat a wedge of it all at once. It's, you know, going through 70 pages of NPCs after NPC was just, it, it got to be a bit of a slog and I enjoyed it less uh, as we got closer to the deadline of having to record this. But earlier on, when I was just kind of skimming through it and seeing what caught my interest, uh, that was where it was at its best. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's probably the best way to use it, I think. Now, uh, what were some of the entries that caught your eye the most, Horn? Like, overall? <laughs> that's a lot of... Yeah, just in general, man. Like, you, you, you give us a sense of sort of some of the things in here. Ben does a lot of great stuff overall. I love some of the additions he makes to general cosmology. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, the dead archetypes. The whole Nibiru thing, which he does in a very interesting way for pulling in the sort of Anunnaki Nibiru shit. Yeah, because that's not that easy to bring it into the Anunnaki's cosmology no. while retaining the unknown armiesness of it and not being subsumed by that existing conspiracy theory. But he does a pretty good job of it. Yeah. The way he talks about that sort of thing, it does really, definitely reminds me of some of the conversations we've had about, like, uh, overlapping or parallel occult undergrounds that aren't aware of each other, yeah. which is, I think it's really yeah. fun. And he's actually does a very good job of bringing in some of those conspiracy elements that are kind of pushed away from UA stuff most of the time. Yeah. Like sub project candy onion does a great job of bringing in all the ufology stuff while still fundamentally coaching it in the UA humanocentric you did itness. Yes, absolutely. What I like about Subproject Candy Onion, not only because it's well, the basic idea is that like this UFO phenomenon, uh, it is exists, it does exist, but it's us that are doing it with our beliefs, right? If I remember that correctly. Yeah, the central idea is yes, the men in black do exist. They're a small government agency in like a shit office on the corner of some obscure Air Force base. And they accidentally created aliens by pushing the narrative that they existed in order to cover experimental aircraft testing. Which there's some logic to that. You know, it's a very fun setup for the sort of Delta Green-esque stuff that I love for the same reason that I love Flex Echo. Oh, yes. It gets that shit to work in the UA-ness. And part of the thing they do there is always like, all right, no, this isn't some big spell on government conspiracy. It's some shitty office in a corner somewhere that has like six people working for it. Which is always the way it should be. But then again, that's how people describe Delta Green as well sometimes. But I think how I think of it is like, when these two these games were being developed, because a lot of the same people yeah. were developing both games, yeah. there was, I know especially from John Tynes, there was a reluctance to go retread old territory and having a bit of a separation between, like not having as much governmentness in Anunnami's made sense at the time as a design decision. But we're not John Tynes, we're not Greg Stolze. We can do what we want. Yeah. And sometimes I want some crazy government conspiracies in my Anunnamis and having them like be filled with obsessive weirdos makes sense 
Yeah, as is anyone else and obliquely involved with Goku Underground. And I've run into people that are like, I really like Unknown Armies. I'm not so much into Delta Green, but I do dig aliens. So having that way to bring all that into your UA game, you know, this is still fundamentally about urban legends and conspiracies. There's this own spin on it, but you want to have your way of bringing in the X-Files shit, all the Eric Von Daniken stuff that people love while still fitting in the general established uh, way that things work. And then there's that great moment of, yes, your cabal has spent years investigating Area 51 and Subproject Candy Onion, the secret project encased in Area 51, only to realize oh, fuck, we did aliens all along on accident. That is good. It's that twist. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of fun shit for that sort of thing in here. It does make sense compared to like how the, like, the deep truths of aliens in Delta Green is, well, it was the Lovecraftian mythos all along. Yes. And I don't know how many is it, it was us all along. Yeah. That spin needs to be there. That tone needs to be there. And Ben does a great job about maintaining that. How I've been looking through this book is I'm thinking that I'm probably going to be running a UA campaign in the Silicon Valley pretty soon here. And I've been looking through this with that in mind. thinking like, all right, what's some things I can pull from that? Um, one that I liked a lot was the gold mine of San Francisco. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The setup for that one is Robert Stroud, the famous Birdman of Alcatraz figured out how to oh, yes. part his mind into thousands, the thousands of gulls that seep through the city like rats. It kind of reminded me of the whole Pigeon King mythos that developed yeah. on the Facebook group, but it's very distinct. And I like, yeah, yeah gull-based hive mind is fantastic. And there's some kind of related stuff, like there's a ritual in here that I liked a lot. Verminous Rebirth, which allows you to turn yourself into a swarm of rats. Because, yeah, it's always fun to have that as an option. I mean, sometimes you need to be a swarm of rats. Yeah, sometimes you need to be a swarm of rats. Uh, I have a thing for that whole vermin as hive mind sort of deal. Yeah, it's fun. There's a lot you can do with it, too. And anything where there's like weird animal stuff is always fun with me. I am like, what's some stuff that stuck out to you, Torm? In regards to like just little bits that you liked, I liked I liked the last twenty dollar bill. That was funny. I liked the idea that it, it it's uh, destined to be the last existing twenty dollar bill and therefore can't be destroyed. But it's already kind of fucked up. What does what does that tell you? It's already tattered and like this stuff yeah. on it. So like, what does that tell you? This is going to be the last twenty dollar bill in existence. It also opens uh, ask some questions about the cosmology, which makes me. But no, it doesn't. Uh, contradict the cosmology just so much as just raises questions. How does this mean it to be the last $20 bill? I mean, th- whenever you're dealing with like the cosmology end of things, it's always important to be kind of like, all oh, right, here's just enough detail to be evocative without sort of trampling on other stuff, even if it implicitly conflicts to it. I mean, you know, you can always figure out a way to have those not be mutually exclusive. And any UA game is not likely to bring in all the cosmology of UA anyway. Like, I've never put Old Mother Apocalypse in the game. That's always been one of those things of like, eh, fuck, how do I put this in there? It's always been felt like kind of a stretch. What about you? I haven't used Old Mother Apocalypse. I think I could, but it would have to be a whole thing. 
but it's kind of got like some that mythos hanging off it with um what the wives of the Compte things like that. Yeah, I haven't yet. I I wouldn't mind doing that at some point. I wouldn't mind setting a game in Melbourne, Australia, which would be pretty fun. Yeah, bringing the Druidic insurance agencies. I know that with my Mac attacks project, the existence of Old Mother Apocalypse helped me get rid of the famous NPC Ishtar from Break Today. I didn't know what to do with her, so I just sent her off to go with be with my old mother apocalypse because, like, yeah, that makes sense. She has the same kind of ideology. Like, that is one of the things that, like, like even when I'm not into it, all of it still feels very fundamentally gameable. I can see a lot of like a lot of these artifacts, all these rituals, all of these uh, unnatural entities could be easily dropped in. I'm tempted to use a couple of these things for the actual play. There's a couple of uh, like VHS-based magic that I'm thinking yeah, about. Yeah, no, I was catching some of that, and I was like, oh, this would be good for uh, the thing that Tom and I are working on, which you guys will be uh, hearing about pretty soon, actually. So cool. keep an eye out for that, but uh, we'll be hush-hush for now. I do like this one. Compromat is pretty fun. I don't remember what that one was, and I don't want to go scrolling through this big old PDF right now. What is that one again? It's a padded green envelope, A4 size, with some Cyrillic lettering on it. It rattles ambiguously, but it is basically, uh, it shows you definitive physical proofs of the worst thing you've ever done in the most compromising way. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, that was good. And it's different for every person looking at it. Yes. Yeah, no, that was good. There is some actually solid horror in here, too. Definitely some things that, like, if you, if you read it, it's not that horrifying. But if you, like, think about, wait, in play, this would be terrifying. <laughs> well, no, the one that stuck out to me the most is completely horrifying was the gimme, which is, like, basically, it makes really on-the-nose advertisements and, like, posters and such to try to, like, lure in victims. And then when you order whatever product is being sold, the gimme shows up on your doorstep in a big old box. And it's just this... Like, it's basically a giant piece of wet coral the size of a refrigerator with a giant tongue. Like, force feeds you birds in styrofoam and is basically trying to treat you like a pet until it gets bored. Yeah, that, that whole treating you like a pet thing is terrifying, to be honest. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, no, there was a, like, that was one of those things that just struck to me. Like, it wasn't even like a, you know, like an existential sense. Like, oh, that's just gross, man. But yeah, just being in that position, like, being it was a, it's a different helplessness check up the wazoo while unnatural checks of course yeah i mean like a lot of things that strike me here is always like the key spark for me is like oh this would be a cool thing to have it as an npc uh one of the big ones there was the uh, ritual home is where the heart is where you like replace your heart with a brick and then bury your heart beneath the foundation of a building and it just means that any damage that you take physically is displaced onto the house and vice versa. That is pretty, yeah, that is fun. Yeah, there's that weird old hermit guy that lives on the edge of town that never leads his, the, you know, the Boo Radley, and it turns out, yeah, he's like a house lich. Yeah, house lich. <laughs> Property lich. Yeah, exactly. You could do like a twist on that. Like, if you create like a proxy uh, between a house and some dude whose life was fucked up, like completely fucked up, and then you, like, get that guy to slowly improve his life or her life, like, get a job, like, quit uh, substances, like, put themselves back together. But what you're really doing is, like, using that sympathetic magic to, like, improve the house that you've already bought and are now going to flip. And as soon as that guy gets his shit together, you break the connection, flip the house, which is now looking great, and the guy just goes back to his old habits because you've cut off the yeah. connection. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I mean, like speaking of which, um, th- there was a couple of addiction related ones in here that I liked. Uh, the mortification method is one that, like, basically it's sort of um the you know usual cat and nine tails self flagellation thing. The way the ritual works is it allows you to do that in place of indulging in an, adi- an addiction of yours. And the idea I had there was like this old Kabbalah's getting together to do one last job, and their old dipsomancer has crawled onto the wagon. Uh, using that ritual and your job is to yank him off of the wagon so he can get totally smashed again to help you, you know, rob a bank or whatever. This is definitely an example of a debate that's been happening on the Discord about unknown armies characters. Are they just bad people or not? They don't have <laughs> to be, but that's the way example. I like them to be just kind they need to have redeemable aspects. You know, any good character, I think, is a mix. They have some flaws. They have some virtues. But one of the things I love about this game is how it really lets you if you want to. Everyone still has a noble passion for most people. Yes, exactly. They always have that thing that keeps them going. All about the choices you make. You did it. So if yeah. you want to be yeah. a piece of shit, okay. If you want to be a good person, change the world... You can do that too. In my experience, and this sort of ties in like with that sort of uh, Corn Brothers influence on Unknown Armies, both in the game itself and how I tend to run it, of, you know, good is kind of boring. It's uh, good is domesticity. It's having a family and a loving uh, wife or husband. It's, it, it's living your life. But evil is exciting. That's how it gets its hooks into you. And, you know, when you're playing a role-playing game, sometimes the most exciting part of it is just being a shithead. And then you ask yourself, this is not my beautiful house. Never mind. Anyway. But yeah, like, you know, th- there's plenty of shithead fodder in this book. There's a lot of fun spins on demons and Ben. Like demons are always one of those things. That's like, eh, like I like the take of UA on it, but it always felt like it was difficult to insert them into like a way that wasn't core to the campaign conceit. And there's a lot of fun actual uses and interesting spins on them with this. That for sure, I really like actually a lot of the just unnatural entities he's included. Because there's yeah. some interesting ones that aren't aren't human related, but they still make sense within the Anonami's milieu in a way. Like I really like the inflatable turnkeys, which are yes. like inflatable dolls that have been turned into like magical slaves, but then go and do their own thing. I really like the fact that like it's distinct from say non-entities, because what I like about non-entities is how they get obsessed with emotion, right? But these inflatable turnkeys instead get obsessed with like whatever tasks they've been tasked with. And it yeah. says something about it. entire Baroque philosophies are constructed around the act of making breakfast or piloting a boat. And I'm like, yeah, that's something that's fun. That's an alien way of thinking, but it's it would be fun to use this inflatable servant, which has a, an insane philosophical theology that has developed making eggs. Um, speaking of eggs and unnatural entities, the McAllisters. The McAllisters are horrifying. I like it. <laughs> so the setup for these things is at some point in the past, a videomancer figured out how to pull characters from like media and such and store them on VHS tapes and then bring them into the real world. Most of them 
go insane from like existential terror and for one entity one particular character that has proven extremely intelligent and resilient which is the home alone protagonist kevin McAllister. so somewhere there's this colony of malevolent macaulay culkins that are breeding more of themselves in like vhs tape eggs which is which is horrifying that's just so fucking out there and great the matroshka parasite which is if you get hit too much with spells that try to disrupt your free will, a smaller version of yourself, they kind of get pushed into like a smaller version of yourself that unzips you from the inside and pops out to go do those things that it has been compulsed to do through years of magical influence. Is some David Lynch madness right there? <laughs> no, the there's worst. a lot of great body horror in here. Like, well done, Ben, on this. You did a great job on just some fundamentally horrifying shit. I really like the Potemkin, which is the spirit that makes everything, everyone else think that you're fine and you're doing great, which is good unless you're injured. Yeah. The natural entities in general, like that and the rituals, are probably my favorite sections of the book. Yes. As far as rituals, A Streetcar Named Desire was one I liked a lot. You do rude shit on the bus, and wherever you're dropped off, finally, by the bus driver, whoever just getting fed up with your shit, that as long as you're doing this rude thing, you're thinking of the target and you'll be dropped off close to whatever your target desires the most. It's just such a useful ritual, but it might be fun to play So you can use that to triangulate it over time through public transportation. And the thing that stuck out to me here is there's nothing stopping you from targeting yourself with this, right? Not by rules as written, I don't think. Through jerking off on the bus, you can finally find true love by slowly triangulating the position of where they live. Yes, yes. That's fucked up. But yes, that's 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 a fun NPC. Hey, why is this weird? Why do we keep running into this weird dude who's like, you know, getting himself off in public? And he's just a sad, lonely man who has found out this way to find true happiness. And this is the only way he knows how. And this is why you're such an effective scholar of the occult underground, because you, you think like these mad, sick, adept <laughs> bastards. <laughs> That's, again, one of the things I love about UA on a mechanical and a thematic level is it kind of, it very much encourages you to tap into that sort of schizoid part of your brain. Yeah. And that's like on a mechanical level too. And, you know, maybe we should talk about some of the house rules that Ben's come up with here, which are, are probably my favorite part of the book, considering how short they are, especially. I agree. Like, not to insult the rest of the book, because it's just good information, but the optional rules are really well done. Like, anyone can make up house rules, but these are good house rules. Yes. No, these are well-thought-out house rules coming from someone with a strong understanding of the game. And most of them are tied into coercion in a way that's really smart. Oh, yeah, like, basically, just this one page on coercion. I'm just like, yeah, yeah. This, this is just how coercion works now in my game. I mean, the three things we've got here, not to get too deep, but there's not that much 
it's not a spoiler or anything. Um, people yeah. should buy this book anyway. But he's got these three ideas. The first one is counter coercion, which is the idea if someone coerces you, you can coerce them right back with something else. And that that just makes sense to me. Yeah. So what I want to like gush about coercion as a mechanic. I have seen so many role-playing games where they try to come up with some mechanics to make verbal, non-violent resolution of conflict reliable in the same way that combat is because i think that's one of the big reasons that players so readily look towards combat as a way to resolve problems is because there's reliable rules for it it's not this gm adjudication stuff it's all right we know how a fight is going to work it's reliable in a weird sense so Beyond that, it's also just very dramatically satisfying. You have a disagreement with someone. Punch them in the fucking face. Stab them with your sword. It will resolve the conflict in a way that makes sense. And most sort of non-violent conflict resolution systems that I've seen that aren't just kind of, hey, guys, just do a roll. And if you succeed, it works out for you tend to feel really weird and gamey where it's sort of like a system for verbal debates. And that's outside of a very narrow set of circumstances. That's usually not how a sort of argument is going to work out. How uh, it's not going to resolve itself of, aha, but I have the best reasoned argument and that's how this gets resolved. No, no, this isn't, you know, this isn't r slash atheism. What was that sudden, like, taste of British accent I heard when you were saying that? I don't fucking know. I was trying to do my impression of the, debate me, sir! I love coercion because it solves so many of those problems in the broad strokes. It's, if you're having, like, if you're about to come to blows, which are, is how a lot of, like, verbal conflict ends up in role-playing games, it's a much more sensical way to sort of de-escalate the conflict, which is especially important in unknown armies because more so than any other game I've encountered, combat is chaotic. Combat is dangerous for everyone involved, not just in the sense of you might get hurt, but you can also very easily end up hurting someone else way more than you intend. Yes. You can you can really fuck someone up. You can get major consequences. Like if you're doing your job as a GM properly, like dude, if if some some weirdos start killing each other with knives in an argument about whose beanie baby is the most holy, the cops are just gonna put them in jail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, sure, they might be able to use their magic to break out of jail, but they still have a record. They still are a wanted individual and not to mention if they just phase through the jail's walls somehow at least one of the cops are like what the fuck happened here all right i need to investigate their house there must be some sort of explanation for this magic does not solve problems usually it just creates more of them this cop's just like this guy's phased through the wall the other cop's like all right and then he's like and he stole the donut right out of my stomach and congrats now you've accidentally got like an entire police department involved with the occult undergrad Yes. And that's why having social combat, or at least an activity that's baked into the rules, something you can do that's like role-playing, like as pure role-playing is fun, and everyone likes to do it. No, everyone, but people like it. But it's just really helpful to have 
rules that respect that side of things. So it's not just all about fighting in terms of vi- physical violence, but also about like badgering people and harassing them and yelling and trying to get your own way through words. And are you, as you said before about the like other systems do it like in a gamey way. That's yeah. very true, but it can work. I've experienced Burning Wheels Duel of Wits, which is fun. Duel of Wits it... works in very specific circumstances. That's kind of what I mean. It's like, because I've played Burning Wheel too. I love the game, but you, know, you, you aren't going to be able to use those every time you're trying to convince an NPC your way. You don't want to be like, all right, time to pull out the flowchart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've only played it once, and the Duel of Wits was kind of like a it was like a one shot set in Middle Earth, and I was a dwarf, yeah. and I was arguing with Legolas at the climax, and <laughs> that actually worked. No, that's good. That's good. That's the thing about Duel Wits. I think is it's good for climactic stuff like that, right? Yes, and that makes sense. But it's not. It worked better, I think, in that kind of like an epic fantasy style. Of yeah. play, but it wouldn't work for Unknown Army's style, in my opinion. I could see it working for Unknown Armies in like the specific circumstances of like a trial or something. Yeah, maybe. Right? So for some reason, our campaign has set up, ended up in a situation where organized debate is useful to us, whether it's, you know, we're in a debate club or much more likely for UA characters because you've been arrested and have to make your case to a judge. And UA even has rules for that. Trial is specifically cited as a case for using the gridiron, right? Yes. And that's actually um, good to mention the gridiron is because that could be a choice you could make if you wanted to do a more gamey thing with this counter coercion. Because I could see counter coercion working with the gridiron system if it's like two people making like steadily escalating threats to each other and yeah. seeing which one goes which way. Because as it is, he's got either both people back down or both people take the hit. You could do it the gridiron style and have one person be the, the overall winner. Have it be like an anti-up sort of thing? You wouldn't want to do that all the time, but it could work like as for a dramatic situation, you know? So yeah, like the same way that most, like say you're playing D&D, just like your average fight in an alleyway, you're not going to lay out the battle mat for that. This isn't worth dwelling on for the next two and a half hours with turns and shit, right? It's, all right, roll loose initiative. You go to each other for a while. And once you bloodied him a bit, he's like, all right, man, all right, all right. Uh, I, I yield, I yield, or whatever. I yield. Again, this is fucking Dungeons and Dragons. I yield, sir. Forsooth, please sheath thy blade so I may explain thyself. Puts the puts the switchblade away. And then, yeah, that's the thing. UA combat is pretty fucking fast, and a lot of it is not going to resolve be resolved in terms of who drops first. It's going to be like, all right, man, jeez, uh, stop, stop, fuck. You know, most verbal combats like that. Most verbal combat isn't going to be all right. We're going to be dwelling on this argument for the next two hours. It's going to be all right. You guys are a bit of an impasse here, and we want to resolve this quickly through rule play. And I love coercion as well because it's just rules light enough to be a great sort of rules foundation for role play. And that role play then builds off of and can take advantage of as it sees fit to instead of being like, all right, we're using this whole new set of rules for the next however long to resolve this. Yes, and also because it, it covers so many different types of coercion, and that it, it's 
it's so much more flexible than than violence. Yeah, and it doesn't feel as narrow as something like a very rules driven argumentation system. And I also love it because it mechanically encourages players to find out about NPCs. Like that classic thing of, hey man, I've made this really cool villain. Okay, fuck, how do I encourage my players to find out about their in-depth backstory that I've put 3,000 words into instead of just fucking killing them? Hey, this system encourages them to delve into their history and spend time with them to find more about them because it means they can figure out how they tick to get bonuses on their coercion rolls by bringing in their passions and shit. Yeah. And this is why Ben, he wrote as well, Me, Myself, and You, that Anandi's book. And he included um, a read passion as a potential feature, which I was skeptical at first, but now I've had more time to think about it. It makes more and more sense because... Otherwise, the GM is going to have to like leave breadcrumb hints if yeah. he wants you to figure out what someone's fear. Like because the way you're putting it about how, yeah, using coercion is great and having an idea of what makes someone tick, like it really helps with coercion attempts. But as is, and you might say like, oh, it's too easy just to read someone's passion like that. But I'm like, well, it makes it much more useful to know yeah. if you can know what they are. If you have some supernatural identity that reads passion, it's one thing. But if it's a mundane identity, you'd have to be you have to explain it somehow. Like you, I had a character who had a read passion, but it was based on um. So question, question: Does read passion like apply for all passions or just one that you pick? I believe it's one that you pick. Okay, good, because otherwise it's a bit much. But being like, all right, uh, I am an anger management counselor, so of course I can read someone's rage passion. Yes, I did like a, I was like a weird FBI agent, and I could do psychological profiles on people, and that was a, a unique ability. It was for I read me myself and you, and the GM let me do that. But it's just very uh-huh. useful. It's a little bit too magicy, even though it's like, this is a game about magic. I think um, it works. Yeah, it gives you a, a bit of a peek under the hood, but in a way that's still fundamentally tied into something fictional. You can justify it with magic, or it can be like. My identity is always sees the good in people, so I can read their noble passion. Sure. Yeah. I just think it should be it shouldn't be something you could just do by like eyeballing someone. There has to no. be some interaction no. there. Yeah, it needs to be like an extensive bit of interaction, the same way that like reading their shot gauges. And honestly, I think the reading the shot gauges, the evaluate shot gauge feature honestly is a bit weak for what it should do. It shouldn't just be like, okay, they have more or less than you. It should, I think, on a success, give you a bit of a better idea. I think that whole idea is it's tied with the whole uh, part of how the GM is meant to keep track of wound points and yeah. keep that layer of mystery from the... For, so the, the players treat the characters as people, not just numbers on a page. But the problem with that, which is a fine idea, but it kind of, I think it kind of works better in second edition than third, because like the fact that coercion is such a big part of the game, and it's pretty obvious what, how your situation, your mental situation is, even though that would technically be less evident to someone it's easy to figure out that you're physically wounded than if you're mentally traumatized. Like yeah. from like it's specifically if, if, if I'm losing a leg, I know my leg is gone. But if I've 
got like weird issues. It's hard sometimes. It's hard to see the forest from the trees. Yeah, you won't be able to figure out what your wound threshold is. Though, if I met correctly, me myself and you does include an identity feature that allows you to evaluate wound thresholds, right? Oh yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. So and no, that's good. Like because I like like having that layer of obfuscation be there by default. But if players want to spend character building resources to be able to look past that obfuscation. I like that. That's good. And, you know, it's not like you can't figure out what makes someone tick without those rules, right? You can make an educated guess. It's just you aren't going to have that confirmation of what their passion is. And you kind of have to have the GM step forward and be like, a dog walks past and the NPC's eyes widen and they shy away. Some are tricky to put in. And that's the thing. It's like, all right, say they're claustrophobic. That's going to be, you're going to need to work a bit to come up with a situation for that. But fear passions in general are usually pretty tricky to figure out. That's a big weakness that someone has. And that's some, usually something that people don't want to reveal to others. And people cover it up or suppress it or whatever, yeah. make it not obvious. And so you have to be looking at someone and be like, wow, he, he sure gets out of that elevator pretty quickly. And like, I mean, as far as taking advantage of passions, the fear passion is probably the most damaging for someone to know, even because it has like mechanics tied to it, even excluding all the stuff about coercion, right? Yeah, but you can make arguments for other things as well. Yeah. You could say that like fear is the most easy, obvious thing to manipulate, fear and rage. But if you really want to fuck with someone, fuck with their noble, especially if, especially if you're going with a coerced self. Because yeah, that's the big thing. That always targets the same gauge. And if you are able to read someone's self well, then that can be very damaging. Yeah, see, there's like different approaches here. Having these sort of reliable rules makes players more likely to reach for this as a way to resolve conflict instead of just, all right, I'm going to take a swing at him. Exactly. It's a reliable way to de-escalate conflict, which is something that a lot of role-playing games just don't have. Yes, I agree. And I think with these rules that Ben has given, like the giving coercion fangs, it's yes. just... Basically just increasing one rank yeah, of that, that's coercion. The thing. All that shit I said about, oh, I like coercion directly. By default, coercion, unless you bring your own or the other guy's passions into it, is only a rank one stress check, i.e. a stress check that is by default hardened against by player characters. Yes, and that makes no sense. Generally, with the new rules, I generally you pretty much give every human like at least one rank in everything. I think that's the like. I didn't think it used to be that way, but that's how I pretty much do it. So, and as he, he mentioned, that maybe if you use different rules for NPCs, it's different. But I'm just like, I don't like like just by increasing one point, it makes coercion make a lot more sense uh, because the the maximum coercion you can do. It under the under the current rules would be eight a rank eight check. If you involved, if you got a crit or a match success, and you brought in all three of your passions and all three of the target's passions, yeah, I'm like, when the fuck are you gonna do that? When is that gonna happen? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. And I wish that the rules by default had some more guidelines for like, all right, depending on the amount of shit that you have on them, like how credible the threat is. In my opinion, it should start at like two and then go up to like four 
without even bringing passions into things. Yeah, maybe if there's different bonuses or whatever, like circumstances, like if you're trying to threaten someone, you might get an extra rank up if you've got a weapon or they've got nowhere to go or something like yeah. that. Like you've got to have, I think that maybe it should just, like the GM should eyeball it a little bit more and say like, hmm, based on what you've got, this is probably a rank four. This is probably a rank five or whatever. Yeah. Having a bit of that range for it is good. I don't think it should be able to go too high without you bringing in those concrete mechanical elements. Sure. That ties in well if it's a bit more, if it can go, there's a bit more range to it. That encourages you more so to use evaluates meter identities. Yes, for sure. I also like this untethered coercion idea because it took me a while to like figure it out. But I, the idea that coercion is only linked to one skill is kind of silly. One base skill. Yeah, I agree. I I agree there. Um, I also agree with his criticisms of the idea, which is it kind of makes the whole coerces X meter feature for identities useless. You could just have it so untethered coercion doesn't have those fangs he's given them before. It's the default. If you want to coerce... Yeah, with... that could work. Honestly, I'd probably forget about that shit in the moment. So that's yeah, why I'd be against it. I, I get the general idea. I mean, uh, what I'd probably do it is you can sort of bring different attributes of yours into a given case of coercion. And you can yeah. use that to up it. Again, it's something to eyeball, I think, more than anything else. It's hard to come up with concrete rules for, but if you were to do it, maybe the more of your identities or attributes you can bring into it. If a player came to me and was like, look, I want to intimidate this person, but my struggle sucks and I don't have coerced violence, but I can do this, 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 and this, and I think, therefore, I should be able to roll this for yeah. my coerced violence. If it's a good argument, I'll probably be like, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, we, we've been talking about this one page for a good, like, 25 minutes. Um, he, there, It's not all that's there. He also has rules for downtime, which I'm kind We're of... We're going to do this for every single page in this 200-plus page. Exactly. He has rules for downtime, which I'm kind of iffy on, but I like the general principle of him. He's kind of bringing it's, in... The it, this is just Delta Green rules. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, he's broadly bringing the Delta Green rules, but the, it doesn't work quite as well for unknown armies because Delta Green has that sort of implicit episodic mission structure, which unknown armies usually doesn't have. So it's a bit more difficult of a thing to slot into. If you were doing a TNI game or a sleep yeah. thing where you did have like quote-unquote missions or being ordered to do certain things and then having time in between it works it also works in a normal campaign if like an objective has been passed and like sometimes in games that there is like yeah, time, needs time to pass yeah yeah what should we do until we wait for the next solstice uh it's downtime rules yeah because like in practice i i don't think i would use these every time but I would have liked to have had these existing. And the way I'd probably end up using these is say I'm doing a campaign that's not even episodic, but like their goals are just on a longer time scale, such that I'm not really following what these guys are up to day by day by day. I'd be kind of like, all right, um, you know, you aren't dedicating your entire life to figuring out how to raise Prince from the dead. You are doing it as a hobby. All right, here's the downtime stuff you're doing during your the mo the majority of your time, right? 
Those occult hobbyists are the worst. Fucking casuals. <laughs> God damn it. And he includes all complications you can bring in, which I dig. Just, you know, applying some concrete rules there. I love that he included charge gathering in here because there's been so many times in campaigns where it's, I want to do this, but I need some time to gather some charges. Sorry, dudes. All right, well, yeah. you guys, while he's counting change in the streets to get magic, what are you guys up to? We can't do this because he's too busy masturbating <laughs> for the day. So what should we go? We do. I guess we're treading water. We're I guess we're also masturbating. But for far less justifiable reasons. <laughs> for leisure yeah, purposes. Exactly. He's wanking for work. Well, like this time, like, you know, say you're doing a Sex of the Naked Goddess campaign, right? This is the sort of thing where you'd cover, hey, here's when we're filming our weird porn rituals. Especially if you're dealing with like higher level campaigns when you are ingrained into some organization in some way and actually like, you know, in control of resources and the decisions involved with managing them. This downtime stuff is great for that. That just makes me think of like Detective the Naked Goddess as like obligation and like people going in to have their ritual sex, but having the attitude of it being like, oh, I have to go to church. This Sunday, I don't really want to go to church, but I guess we have to go. They have a fucking punch card outside the studio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Daphne Lee is like scolding them for not taking it seriously. I mean, and that's not even that far from the truth if you're like a fluffer. So Exactly. Yeah. So they he adds some fun new stuff for gutter magic, which I like a lot. Ward, I think makes a lot of sense. Counter tilt out gutter magicking a guy trying to gutter magic you makes it i think there should be even more gutter magic yeah. craziness actually like these are really these are solid clue i've always basically yeah, just used. it's like wait that's not just how it worked by default but yeah because like that's the great thing about gutter magic it's a the it's a thing for the players to force of the all right we're stumped instead of doing the idea roll let's cobble together some weird improv magic and see what falls out it's a way for players to reliably bring magical elements in but they're just kind of inherently weaker and they're not reliable but they're there. But something that they can always try. Yes. It's a lot better than where the fuck are we going to get a ritual from? That's a whole goddamn objective yeah. in and of itself. We don't have time for that. Let's do some gutter yeah. magic. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And then he has a random demon generator, which is a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. That's always fun. Unknown Armies does not have enough random tables. I was thinking that, actually. I was wondering, like, what if we did like a whole OSR style thing with Unknown Armies? It would be pretty fun. I am playing a. Aztec Enterprises game, which has a very similar tone, but focusing on the dungeon crawling thing. I mean, I could very easily see sort of a rule book for that. Bringing how do you bring some of the old school dungeon crawling style goodness into unknown armies? And here's some other old school style stuff in there too, like random tables and such. Finally, unknown armies can have its own random harlot table. My issue with the esoteric enterprises random generated thing is that it's I don't have all these dice with me and it's supposed to like throw them all onto a piece of paper and then draw connections and that's cool and fun. But I'm like, it must be an easier way. The underground building stuff can be a bit much at times. It's fun and cool, but there should be other ways to do it. Yeah, I think. Exactly. I agree. Well, I think that's the great thing about the corkboard, right? The corkboard kind of supplants that same sort of purpose in a way that gets players immediately invested. And 
works a bit better for the sort of games that Unknown Armies does. Yes, exactly. So if you were going to do a dungeon crawl, porting in the system that generates a literal underground is good. But for how it usually is, where it's a bit more loosey-goosey, rather than like actually keeping like the geography of the situation in mind, it, the corkboard works better, I think. I agree. I agree. Um. Well, fuck. We've got... Yeah, what else we got here? The ritual stuff is pretty obvious. Yeah. You know, you don't need cast rituals. This is kind of tying into something that I was thinking of recently, of the whole obsession thing. And I don't think the avatar identity should need to be an obsession. If someone isn't consciously channeling that archetype. I agree. And you you see in the book as written, like, okay, avatars and adepts need to have obsessions. And that makes complete sense. That It's ingrained in the reality of being an adult. But for avatars, there's a lot of them that don't need to have them as obsessions because they don't know that they're doing it. You could have the obsession be somehow related to the fact that they're an avatar. Like, their obsession has led them down the path of an avatar and a certain interpretation of an avatar, even if they're not aware. But it doesn't have to be obsession is avatar it just has to be linked somehow or should be linked exactly or like your your manifestation of avatarhood is is interpreted or seen through the lens or or whatever of your obsession and that's one of the other things is like it always felt weird to me that the of course i can's don't apply to avatars i'm the mother of course i can take care of a crying baby but yeah that's kind of, yeah it's not in the rules as written but it makes complete sense for them to be there i get maybe wanting to move away from that to make avatars i guess less powerful and jacks of all trades but i think you should still be able to do you it also have mundane identity mother avatar identity mother <laughs> sure but then it's like all right that is your character which i guess kind of works for the mother but you know you want to have a you want to have a bit of a spin on that fundamental archetype. When I said that he's an MVP, I mean he's a MVP as well as an MVP. So I guess getting back to our oddities of a different sort here, is there anything else you'd like to add? We don't want to talk too much about the NPCs, but I will say um, there are a lot of the goddamn NPCs. Yes, and there's like 70 fucking pages of the things. And I do like the fact that it's pretty heavy on the ponies. Yeah. There was definitely a lot of times I was reading through, it was like, yeah, cool. There's a, I could definitely grab this person and this person um, just to, you know, throw a couple curveballs in the campaign because, yeah, they're fun. They're fun people to have. And I do like he uses the broader definition of ponies, which is just someone not in the know, not necessarily someone who's not magical. Yes. Because some of them do have powers and things, but they're, like, not many. I think it's the way it should be. Like, these are the people who are hanging around the fringes of the occult underground. They're the ones that are easy to exploit and yeah. things. And also ones that can become problems later when they get into the know. I mean, I think we talked about that, like, having... Um, like, if I was going to do some GMCs in a book like this, I was thinking about stealing the John Tynes thing from the Labyrinth where he pre presented in a cabal group over time, like this is what would it will be yeah. like if the Cabal group um, first encounters the PCs, and later, like if the PCs attack them, how they'll develop, how they'll respond. Yeah, you actually writing out how they develop, depending on different player stimulus, 
in a concrete fashion rather than just be like, all right, well, this is probably what's going to happen with this guy. Maybe it might have, maybe it might not. I'm going to, you know, giving a couple paragraphs to this guy. It could be like to an extent, it's it's the sort of thing that you can just infer based on like their obsession or like just simply what they're trying to achieve uh, in yeah. their ponydom. But that's uh, uh, that's something I've been thinking about, like presenting NPCs in that way. Yeah, I could definitely work really well, and it would be great for like a larger faction, like your Mac attacks or something similar. There are some interesting like supernatural identities which he included, which you could just take out and use yeah. separate from the NPC. The few that I liked, Weaponized Mind Palace is pretty interesting. Uh, for a demon-heavy campaign, having someone with a weaponized mind palace. Uh, anything with mind palaces. Those are fun. Anything where it's like, hey, here's a physical space that represents this person's noggin. It seems like something that I wouldn't have a character start with. But I might have, like, this is an identity that someone could be taught or find later in the game. You know what I mean? If it became useful. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Like, that, that's always a fun thing for me, The When you have that pony player character, every once in a while I'll throw out something like, hey, here's some magic shit you could get into if you want. I don't really like, even though this is a concept I've played with before, the catapsy, the magic nullifying thing. It, it just it removes the fun stuff. Yeah, I, I feel bad for the guy. But like I don't know, magic nullifying magic, and I have done stuff with it before, but I'm not a big fan. The one NPC that stuck out to me the most in this thing, and it's the weirdest one, I don't know fucking why, is the guy who just wants to run as fast as he can possibly can. Oh yeah. Like not magical at all. He's just the fastest man in the world, but he cannot be recognized because he takes drugs. Because it's not about yes. being recognized as being the fastest man in the world. It's being the fastest man in the world. <laughs> Goes into like if he's exposed to magic, he's gonna be super into it because hey, this is just a way for him to be even faster. I, I like those one note characters, but like they they have that one note and go really weird with it. Yeah, no, one note characters, if it if you go lean fully into it, it could be really interesting. And having this guy running past, like, yeah, you cannot catch him. Do not bother rolling pursuit. He's the fastest man in the world. Yes. What I like about it is like there is a lot of scope in this game for the the mundane badass, but usually the mundane, mundane badass is weird more than anything else. Well, no, well, normally, normally the, the point and the usefulness of the mundane badass is because they have more useful practical skills but i like this character because he's he's got just a mundane skill it's just it's useless in most situations it's very specific it's like a supernatural identity but it's just not but it's just taken it, it's and it goes with the whole obsession and desire and you did it theme no this really guy's well. basically already an adept <laughs> he's basically already has the mindset of an adept there's just no school to go with it yeah, he's not. But you could see how something could happen. But the thing is, he's not going to start channeling a an avatar because he, he's too specific and he doesn't care enough. So I do have one critique about this book. And it's very small. I, mean, I guess I have two, but the, here's the big one. It's not organized super well. It's hard to organize, uh, this sort of thing. It's such like this, but it was kind of a pain when I'm reading through some entry and it's like, oh, okay, this is referencing something on... 150 pages away because technically that's categorized in a different section for the cabals where they have other stuff that ties into it like artifacts or npcs i probably would have just kept those with the cabals personally yeah that is a good point there is a lot of jumping around and there's also a lot of like referencing stuff from other books that i may or may not even have at least the references are there. Yes, and 
including the page number and thank you so much to Ben for including that, but it does make things kind of a pain to read through sometimes. That is true, but it's also something you see in the books, in like books three, four, five. Yes. Yeah, it bothers me in the books too, but yes, it's there. And when it's referencing books one through three, I don't mind so much because I kind of think of those as everything, something that pretty much everyone has, especially for the first two books. But it does make things kind of a pain. And then the problem is sort of just how do you deal with that for this sort of thing, right? I think that kind of ties into the larger thing of this covering such a large range of topics that like even pigeonholing things into things like unnatural phenomena versus unnatural entity is strange sometimes. Yeah, the unnatural phenomenon section seemed to be a kind of a grab bag of things that didn't fit anywhere else. Oh, also an index. I think this book really could use an index. Indexing is hard, but I agree. Yeah, I get it, Ben. But like for a toolkit like this, a lot of times you don't remember the exact page number or something, but you remember the name. And, you know, when you go looking through the index, that's what sparks the memory of it. What you're saying is that if, if it was a physical book, yes. But since it's just a PDF, you can just find no, like, because, like, as long as you, the index is hyperlinked, I think it's still useful yeah, for a PDF. Oh, it's still useful, but not as necessary as it would be for a physical book. Because you can just control F, exactly. I mean, I certainly wouldn't mind having this thing on my shelf. If Ben will, if you even can do print on demand for this sort of thing. I, yeah, I don't think you can. I mean, you can if you just take the PDF to a print shop and say print this. Well, yeah, but through drive through. I don't think they have that at the moment. I, I, I remember people asking about that. This would be a really good. Like imagine like the a hardcover of this book on your shelf. You'd yeah. use it a lot. I find like if I'd just gone through the corkboarding and I had a bunch of ideas, I and I was like, well, how am I going to pull this all together? Let's see what's in oddities and endlings that I can use. Yes, completely. And I mean, it's just more cathartic to just kind of flip through a book and see where it lands instead of like, all right, go through my huge collection of PDFs and see what falls out of them. And this is more of a a difference in interpretation. I do think the book stuff leans a bit hard into the thou must end of magic, which isn't bad in and of itself, but I do think it kind of pulls away from the whole you did it aspect that an yeah. army tries very hard to lean into. You know, in a way, he sort of lampshades it with the Matroshka parasite, right? Yeah. Like, it says, like, hey, yeah, there's these effects and you might get inundated with them. I think there was a couple times this wasn't there, but the vast majority of the time it was something like, all right, do this really tough stress check, and if you fail, this happens. But I still don't like that because it still is outside of the player's hands. It just puts it into the hands of luck. That is something that is, like, part of this game from the beginning. There's a, Even in, like, second ed and third ed, there's lots of you must this. Yeah, and I'm not into it in the other books as well, and there's unfortunate problems with that. I think including those sort of things is fine. Just have them be, sh if you don't do it, then it's a very strong uh, stress check of some sort. Yeah. Not if you fail this stress check, you do it. Yeah. But anything that removes the agency like that is it's like, eh. In cases where it's articulated as your body stops listening to the instructions you're telling it, I tend to be a more, bit more okay with. Well, that's that's how it's meant to be with natural identities to do that. You can either yeah. just tempt someone or you can just puppeteer their body, but you can't make someone choose, which I think is solid. Yeah, and that's the way to do it. Of That free will is still there, just sometimes, you know, 
sometimes your body doesn't listen to you. There's plenty of non-magical people that have that problem, unfortunately. And, you know, if you are compelled to do it, a lot of times you can sort of post facto justify it. But that free will aspect still needs to be fundamentally there for everything for it to be unknown armies. Any final thoughts from you, Torm? Well, I don't know. Like the, what I'm looking at now, I'm looking at the unnatural phenomenon phenomena section. And one thing that comes to mind with this section in particular is we could do whole episodes on some of these things, oh, like yeah, um, Avatar relics. That's a whole campaign concept idea, which is interesting. Which tied in well with the dead avatars thing. Like I love dead gods in pretty much any role playing game. Like that's one of my favorite parts of the whole D and D shit. And yeah. having that avatars are like, all right, you're going to the middle of the Amazon somewhere to dig up this ancient avatar's corpse so you can steal his toes. And you can go in the whole, like, what well, John Dillage's dick or whatever it was, um, things like that. And then you can just go through the suspected avatars in history from the books and be like, mm, whose body parts can we steal from a, a place? Which is a fun spin on sort of the saintly artifacts sort of deal. Yeah. Which is explicitly called out in the book. Yeah, and there's things that you can um, you can get inspiration from, like the Catholic relics of like Jesus and whatnot, and also like how relics are also part of other religions, like Buddhism. In some parts of the world, they have the the monks' relics and things like that. You could bring, you could steal from all those religious traditions, but make it about weirdos. Something that I like with this is it implies that there's fake. Oh yeah, of course. Avatar, of course. Artifacts too. There is a lot of ideas in here that would tie really well into like a really kind of an old school, more more like the fiction, very Avatar centric, Avatar heavy campaign where the invisible clergy is a, and the whole thing is a big part of it because that seemed to be in the early Anunnamis and also in the fiction a lot, I think it played a larger part than in many people's actual games these days. Yeah, I think part of that's just down to the clergy has been taking a bit more of a hands-off approach since the Whisper War. Sure, sure. But there is something to be said for that kind of game, or that kind of... Uh... Yeah, agreed. I mean, like, fuck, there's, as far as UA fiction, some of the closest that there is basically is described by that stuff like American Gods. Yeah, exactly. You've got the Demi Godwalker, which is kind of fun. I like how Ben will explore elements, like small parts of the cosmology, and he'll, he'll grow on it. He'll um, Simple ideas like when you have the Godwalker, what happens when an archetype ascends? Uh, what happens to their friends and family and stuff? Like That is something that's a topic that's not really discussed as much as it could be. Like the naked goddess had a mother. What's her mother doing? And, and it's mentioned and brought up in a few books and things. There's more to it than that. Like, what about, like, there's the idea of the, like, for example, the Dermat Arcane, the, uh, the mystical backwash can affect people in their relationships, maybe. Like, what happens when, to someone's relationships when they ascend? And it, it might not necessarily just be parents and, um, like, family members and children and, and friends and things. It could be people that influence them in some way and set them on a path. Like, even if it's something that is, like, not obviously connected. Let's use the Naked Goddess, for example. We don't even know why she got into the porn industry in the first place, whether it's something she wanted to do or whether it's something that she was forced to do. We don't know why she did anything, really. Exactly. 
But what if there was someone or something, some reason that she took that path versus another path in life? And what would her ascension do to the person? The obvious thing is like a bad relationship or something. That's kind of stereotypical and kind of shitty. It could be anything. Like Sarah Lynn in BoJack Horseman, how she really wanted to be an architect, but she never got the chance. That also applies to like objects with an extreme amount of resonance for their li- the path that their lives took, right? Like for a naked goddess, the casting couch. Yeah, that's a really, the, the casting couch of the naked goddess, yeah. Yeah, that has a lot of mojo packed into it, I'm sure. Among other things, but mostly mojo. There's also things like uh, with failed Godwalkers, if you're talking about objects, yeah. like the famous Alex Abel falling of the keys, where he dropped his keys and he had that neurological event that could have been an ascension but wasn't. Like those keys might be powerful, like the actual oh, physical yeah. keys. Absolutely. That whole idea of the demi Godwalker thing and how these people that aren't even necessarily like, you know, part of their family or like their kids or their parents or whatever, like a spouse could be like say hey it turns out that your husband was living this secret life where he was involved in these weird occult avatar wars and you didn't know anything about it and then he suddenly ascends and you're just left there having to pick up the pieces of your life after your husband turned into a glowing being of light and became the unconscious representation of of the two-faced man there you go and to get back to all these endings, like this sort of connections, interconnections are also brought up again with karmic cobwebs, yeah. which are a fairly simple concept, but they kind of make sense and are easily gameable. Like the connections uh, of these shining gossamer threads where a person's malice or negligence has caused substantial damage. This is an interesting twist on the Chinese folk legend of the lovers connected by the thread, the red thread. And it makes sense on an emotional level that these karmic cobwebs could exist and like sort of wrap around each uh, people and interact with it. And like there is room for lots of different ways of perceiving the world. You know, I mean, that well, people always talk about like the astral plane or whatnot, but there's other dimensions to the world which don't mean necessarily fully other dimensions that fuck with the cosmology, but just other ways of seeing the world that could be translated into supernatural identities. And a lot of this stuff in these uh, endings can be used in that way. Yeah. This is a great book. I got a couple teeny issues with it, but pick it up. Give Ben your money. It's well worth the asking price. If you read some of the fine print, he does take part of your soul with each transaction, but it's fine. You're not going to miss it. Yeah, drive through is already doing that though, so it's like it's well, only okay, so a bit. Ben extra is taking fifty percent, and what drive through gets thirty, and Atlas Atlas Games gets twenty percent, I believe. That's the ratio of the soul. Yeah, but it's only it's I'm like zero point one percent of your soul anyway. So come on, it's fine. What what are you, really? What are you going to do with that? I mean, I got a bunch of people's souls somewhere in this house, but they're underneath a lot of trash. Those things don't even end up getting used half the time by the person you give them to. So, eh, no harm, no foul. Torm, what's your final uh, take on this thing? Lots of mysteries in here. Buy it before the sleepers. Remove it and kill Ben. <laughs> yeah, uh, easily on par with, if not honestly better than a lot of the other source books and the three line. And Ben, if you're listening to this, see if you can put a print version of this thing out. It's fucking good. I want to have this on my show. Yeah, it would be re- it would be amazing 
it's something out of anything on Statusphere or even anything I've got just in PDF form of Unknown Armies. It's just the thing that I would most want to be in a nice book form. Or even a little zine thing, right? For some of those thinner ones. Yeah, sure. Like some of them, yeah. Some of them are good. But this is the one that I would feel would be the most useful tome to have on my shelf if it was a tome. Essentially, this is an unofficial book six, honestly. Yes. And well, with that, uh, I think we're going to be signing off here. We do have something new and unusual coming down the pipes here pretty shortly at that. So, let's see.